Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Ken Dotson, a licensed professional counselor with the Family Care Center. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Pikes Peak Community College. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'm going to be talking about why being surprised can be challenging for some veterans. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allowing our family to take care of your family. On today's Insights into the Military Mind, I'd like to talk about why it may be that so many veterans react to sudden events in some contexts, but seem okay in other contexts. My family and I were having a great time. That great show, Mythbusters, was going into its final season with the original hosts. The hosts, Adam and Jamie, were doing a live tour. My family and I were seeing them at the Pikes Peak Center. All of us are fans, especially my son and I. Mythbusters was one of the series that got me through my second tour in Afghanistan. The stage show was a lot of fun, until the moment that it wasn't. During the big finale, they brought out an audience member dressed in a suit of medieval armor. He stood on the edge of the stage. Between him and the audience, they placed a transparent wall of plexiglass. Behind him, pointed directly towards the audience, they placed a howitzer made of paintball guns. I'm sure that you can see where this is going for a combat veteran. When they let that thing off, the back of my neck tried to crawl out of the top of my head. I turned sideways in my seat, gripped my wife's arm, clenched my teeth, and bore through it. In my mind, the sound of paintballs hitting the plexiglass barriers sounded an awful lot like AK-47 rounds hitting the windows of a military vehicle. As long as it lasted, probably 15 seconds that seemed like 20 minutes, I was straining to remain in my seat the way a dog strains against its leash. Or, perhaps more appropriately, the way a dog reacts to a thunderstorm. And then it passed. As soon as it was over, I was able to calm myself down, shake it off, and go on with the night. The problem with that, besides the trigger for somebody who's experienced combat, is that I wasn't prepared for it. There's something about the unexpected that always throws us off our feet, especially when we're surprised by something negative. I've had a lot of discussions about preparation and surprise. One time I had the privilege of attending a talk by Kevin Sullivan, President George W. Bush's communication director for two years. When talking about interacting with others, he said, preparation is good, surprises are bad. 
Similarly, in an episode of a previous podcast, Headspace and Timing, Dr. Carmen McLean from the National Center for PTSD talked about the difference between being prepared for something negative versus being surprised by something negative. She said that a colleague always told her there's a difference between someone telling you to get ready to catch a ball and someone walking through the door and hitting you with a fastball. Science bears out the idea that being surprised by a negative stimulus is a bad thing. In a study to determine the neurological reactions to adverse events, researchers found that predictability controls the response of the amygdala to both pleasant and adverse events. If we're surprised by something positive, the amygdala amplifies the positive feeling. If we're surprised by something negative, the amygdala amplifies that as well. The amygdala is a small almond-shaped structure in our brain that controls the positive and negative emotional reactions to our events and has been proven to be a critical component in the way that our brain reacts to traumatic situations. For many veterans, both with PTSD and without, increased activation in the amygdala is a result of repeated exposure to traumatic events. The amygdala is always switched on, accounting for the increased hypervigilance that many veterans experience. Couple a surprising negative event with a portion of your brain that's already operating at a high level and you get the kind of response that I had to a paintball howitzer. But negative events are easier to manage if you're prepared for them. In contrast to the amygdala controlling your emotions, the prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of our brain, is involved in emotional control. Consider the amygdala and the hippocampus as the lower parts of our brain, and the prefrontal cortex is the higher front part of our brain. I often explain it to the veterans I work with in this way. The front part of our brain acts like a governor in an engine, a speed-limiting device that keeps the engine at a safe operating level. If we're preparing for something negative, then our prefrontal cortex is already engaged. That's what Dr. McLean is referring to when she says, I'm going to throw you a ball, okay? Get ready, and here you go. When that happens, our brain gets prepared for the event, and the impact of the runaway amygdala is reduced. We're able to react more coherently to an event if we have an understanding that it's about to happen. Consider the paintball howitzer event again. As I'm recalling the story, I have none of the reactions that I did when it happened because I was prepared and the front part of my brain is recounting the story. But being prepared doesn't always mean being on guard. There's a big difference between being prepared and always being on edge. We can't walk through life always thinking that the worst is going to happen because that's what we're going to see. It's as if we're always walking around with an umbrella waiting for the storm. If it rains after three weeks, we tell ourselves, ah, I was ready for it. What we don't realize, though, is that we missed three weeks of beautiful weather waiting for the rain. Sure, sometimes somebody's going to walk in the room and throw us a curveball. We may not be ready for it, and if we experienced a bunch of negative life events, our brains will react in a big way. But if we can't engage the front part of our brain before the event, we can certainly do so quickly afterwards. Again, the paintball howitzer, I didn't let it ruin my night. It was a sudden storm, violent and quick, but it passed as rapidly as it came. I didn't throw the family in the car, rush home, and lock us all in a bunker. I shook it off, took the kids out for some ice cream, and chalked it up to the fact that, hey, that's the life of a combat vet. Humans have the amazing ability to control our own emotions. We just have to get out of our own way to do so. So I appreciate you taking the time to check out these insights. Agree? Disagree? Would love to hear what you think. Share your thoughts with us by dropping an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com. On today's interview segment, I have a conversation with Ken Dotson, a licensed professional counselor with the Family Care Center. Ken's the son of a career Air Force officer and has been a clinician with the Family Care Center since 2015. He works with couples, individuals with trauma through EMDR, and is becoming certified in emotionally focused therapy. 
Let's get into my conversation with Ken and come back afterwards to talk about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So you've been with the Family Care Center since 2015 and have had a, a background growing up in a military family. I'm interested to hear about what you find interesting, sort of how you started working with military and veterans. And I think, yeah, so the answer to that question kind of involves how I grew up. I grew up as a Air Force brat on military bases. And so my dad was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, and he was in intelligence. And he also served in Korea, and he saw action in Korea. And uh, growing up on Air Force bases, it's a different mindset, and it's a different social environment than I would say growing up in the civilian sector, you know, off of base, to the point where I actually remember the first time I left base, and I was like, whoa, I've never been outside the confines of what I know and understand. But the mindset gets drilled into you pretty early, and that is I was not just a kid free to run around and do whatever I want. I was, it was drilled into me that I was the dependent of an Air Force officer. The commander's son, yeah. So it's, it's like there are expectations of me even as a kid in that if I get into trouble, my dad could get into some serious trouble, and so that just wasn't to happen. But it, it's interesting because um, the only kind of discrimination that I ever saw on base was the officers and the NCOs and I was very upset mm. about that because I didn't understand it I was just a kid later on I kind of understood that but there's an affinity that you get growing up on Air Force bases and um, living in that culture you're immersed in that culture so it's going to impact you whether uh, you want it to or not and then I had the opportunity to do some work with a special forces individual before I came down to Haven. And we developed a bit of a mutual respect for each other that frankly surprised me. And um, when I moved down here, uh, the thing that impacted me was I, after after listening to the stories and hearing what the veterans go through, I wanted to help them come home. And what I mean by that is, sure, we bring them home, but be able to enjoy the civilian side of life that I feel in a lot of ways the military kind of estranged you from. Um, you're in a safe, relatively secure environment. You have freedoms here that we're very privileged to have as Americans. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that I listen to their stories, they, they didn't have the freedom to enjoy their freedom. And that impacted me very deeply. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear more about, you know, your, your father having seen, you know, uh, seen action in Korea. Um, of, of that generation and then the following generation, now the new generation of soldiers. Um, did you see some things growing up from your father maybe that, that had impacted him that you might see in, in veterans of today? No, because that was a very private world. Mm -hmm. I mean, he worked in intelligence. Later he told me some of the things that he got to do um, 
I would have to say what I did learn from my father, because when I grew up, I was not the most disciplined kid. And I I think a lot of people go this way. Dad was very conservative, so I went very liberal and, you know, even called myself a non uh, a non-combatant. non-combatant yes. sure. mm-hmm. And those types of the conscientious objector, that's what I'm trying to say. And I didn't understand my father, and I didn't have the maturity to have the conversations with him that I wanted to have. And later on, we just that, that opportunity eluded me. But my dad was a very kind man. My dad had great morals. He wasn't what we would call a religious man. And when I did try to talk to him about his faith, that was a conversation that just didn't go anywhere. So um, I think something ha- he had to he had to take somebody's life in Korea. And I think that impacted him, but that was not a conversation that we could have. Yeah, very different generation, I think. I mean, obviously, and I I think that in my father being a Vietnam veteran, um, I don't think I I knew anything more than just some of the places he served until probably near near the end of his life, right? I mean, there was, um, and a lot of people react differently. My father was very much the same way that he just didn't talk about it. He was there, that was it, and, and we didn't communicate. Um, and, and really, I think this idea of the generational shift from, from there. So then you started working uh, with veterans specifically. The first time we met was actually um, working with veterans in the, in the partial hospitalized program. So you've been working really exclusively with veterans and military families for about the last seven or eight years. That was a appreciated now but terrifying then trial by fire in that I had not even had my license. I was an intern trying to earn my license. And I'm sitting with Jim Bixler and Michael Sunich, who have been doing this 30 plus years of peace, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like the freshman, you know, butter bar is what I feel like. And I'm listening to these guys tell their stories and, and pour their hearts out. And being the empathetic guy that I am, I'm trying to keep it together while I'm listening to to the pain and the horrible things that they're talking about. And this impacted me so much that I actually went to the church and, and asked for them to pray for me because it's like, I felt like I was supposed to be here, I was supposed to do this, but I needed something so that I could stay present and be supportive of these guys and and not be you know be connected but not drowned in their story and that helped me understand i think a part of that experience that i wouldn't have understood otherwise yeah and and really to to help clarify so the partial hospitalized programming these are this is sort of a step beyond just regular outpatient therapy right and and these are veterans spending 3 4 5 hours a day um, really digging into um, some of the the really difficult things that they were they were experiencing, right? And and the objective was to get them to actually share their trauma in the group, and that was a very interesting dynamic to watch how supportive the other soldiers were. And we had 
we had Air Force people, we had Army people, we had officers, we had, you know, lots of sergeants, you know, so it was a mixed, mixed variety. And I think that goes to that, you were talking about that before, about sort of that closed-loop system, right? You know, and, and on the base, it may have been the officers against enlistment, but let some army puke come on the, the Air Force base and all of a sudden everything. But, but there is that shared affinity um, of service members by service members for service members. Yes, there's an understanding. And, and sure, there's, there's differences and tensions even within that. But, but there's, I'd, I'd call it a respect. It's, it's a respect in terms of on the outside looking in, um, you don't have that experience. And so you're trying to understand that experience because I never served, right? I, I was not, you know... And that's a whole other story in itself. But when I wanted to go in, my dad was an officer with a security clearance. What do you think I wanted? I wanted a security clearance. So I told the truth. And it's like, you did what in college? <laughs> We're not interested. So that was the end of that. And, and so, and this is one of the, and we've had these discussions uh, on the show before of you don't necessarily have to have been a veteran to support veterans. Number one, there's not enough of us in the career field. Um, but do you feel at least your basic understanding as, I mean, and, and I was a son of a veteran, but my father didn't serve, right? I really didn't have exposure to military culture um, like you did growing up. Do you think that helped you in some way as a clinician? Not as a clinician, not necessarily. Um, I think what it showed me, it, it's very interesting because I'm very confused by society today just everything that's going on and you're insulated on a military base um whatever's going on outside the base is going on outside the base you're just worried about what are you supposed to be doing on the base so like i say that first time i left base it was very different i think what it endeared me to to try and answer that question, I remember a story, and it's kind of relevant to all of the discrimination and everything's going on today. We had a, a little group, I don't even remember what it was, I think it was a school group, but there was a, a, a black girl who was describing discrimination by other people off base that were harassing her, and I was horrified to hear this story. Never heard anything like it, never saw any kind of discrimination on base. But anyway, her story was she couldn't believe the feeling when she got on the bus and she came back onto the base and the people that were chasing her and threatening her couldn't come on base. Relief. Yeah. Safe. Safety. Yeah, because you're, you're not one of us. You, you can't come on base. Hmm. And it was like, so even though I'm not a serving officer, there's 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 a difference here in terms of, and I just want to say, in in or and and I know that there's an old Air Force and a new Air Force, and that's a thing that's going on. But back then, respect was part of the culture, and dignity was part of how you were raised. And I look around today and I go, where are we? I don't get it. I don't get it. 
No, and, and it, that's that's really interesting. I've I've had veterans say the same thing, um, that they would try to get jobs on post, and as soon as they would cross through the gates, they would feel that sense of relief, that sense of, of feeling home. Um, and, and that's really one of those things that doesn't leave you, right? I, my uniform comes off, it's hanging in the closet, I'm not wearing it again, but that sense of sort of belonging or what have you, and, and it's really interesting. So... Talking about some of the work that you do, one of the things that you do is you work with couples and sort of talk about how our relationships impact healing or maybe our barriers to healing. Uh, I'd like to get your perspective on working with military and veteran couples specifically in therapy. Well, the first time when I saw that question, the thing that popped into my head, I think what what we all struggle with. and. I think it's more acute within the military community, but I think even within the civilian community, we struggle with this, and particularly as men, I think we struggle with this, and that we're not rewarded or encouraged as men to be open, to share emotions, to even really know and understand our own emotions, because our metric is performance. What have you done? How much have you done? How quickly have you done it? How well have you done it? How much more can you do? Right? That's kind of how we're assessed and measured. And what kind of makes this even more acute is in within the military mindset, I think that's even accentuated even more in that what do we want to do? We want to prepare these guys to go into battle, to lead, be a part of a team, to do terrible things if necessary, okay, and to do it while maintaining a maximum level of functionality throughout, right? Resilience and all of this. So then they come home, whether they've been deployed or just gone to NDS or whatever, okay, and then they come home and it's like, oh, all of a sudden my wife wants to connect with me. My wife wants to have a relationship with me, and I'm like, and, and I've basically taught myself how to operate in this different environment, right? Well, here I come. I'm learning emotionally focused therapy, which is out of Sue Johnson's work. And essentially what we try to do in emotionally focused therapy is we look for the motives that are driving behavior. And we see emotions as the door or the key to help us understand those motives for the behavior. And so... What I try to do with the couples, particularly whether it's it's the guy or the gal, is there's a different hat that you have to wear when you come home. You can't wear the hat that you wear at work, even though that's gotten you success and accolades and promotions and all of this. I'm sorry, but your wife is not an E whatever. <laughs> okay, it's not going to work, and. Usually, once you try to get that point across, they're like, okay, and then you can start helping them, um, you know, decide what, what they want to do and, and what changes they want to make. So it, it presents its own unique set of challenges in some ways. No, I really appreciate that. And, I, and more than appreciate it, I can even uh, relate to that. Um, and I was in one of the 15-month tours in Iraq, and in Iraq, I was one of the leaders of the company, right? There were four people. I was the company operations sergeant, so you had the commander, the XO, the first sergeant, and me. 
this is a 160 person company, right? So if I said, let's do something, everybody did it, right? It, that was sort of the position. And then I come home on mid tour leave, knowing that I'm going to be here for two weeks and I go back. Um, nobody would listen to me. The wife wouldn't, the kid, the cats wouldn't listen to me. Right. I mean, and, and it was, and I think I even jokingly said, don't you know who I am? And she was like, I don't care. But I, because I had come from a combat zone and I was in that, I was Sergeant France mindset and I was going back to it. It was very hard to make that shift and sort of hang up Superman's cape at the door. And that has to be very disillusioning for you because it's like, what you don't care about me you don't respect me you don't you don't know me right and so there's a real a real tension there in terms of just getting to know each other again right and then the big challenge uh, in working with this and talking to others who've done a lot of work in this area is how do you stay connected when you're deployed to what extent can you stay connected what are your options to stay connected um even if you're just going off on training or whatever, how do you maintain a connection so that it's not so radically different right. as you described? And then you have those, you know, say now they leave the military, they still want to be in the military. I don't care if, you know, for a majority of us, if you spend five years or 25 years in, you sort of wish you were there. For some of the reasons you were talking about before, I was comfortable there. I was familiar there. I, things made sense there. They don't make sense out here, so to speak. Um, and so there's that challenge of needing to leave work at the door, even when you're not doing the work anymore. And you might see that with a lot of veteran couples. Well, and, and I think the word that comes to mind for me that we want to transplant in a way is safety. In that there is a sense of safety and security. You know, I, I've had people describe to me success in the military, if you're diligent, is not necessarily that hard in that if you, you know what's expected of you, you know when you're supposed to show up and you know what you're supposed to be ready to do. If you can manage to do those things and maintain proficiency in the areas, that, then, you know, you should. It's pretty hard to screw it up. Yeah, I mean, but you, you should not, you know, I'm, I'm saying there's other factors there as well, but, you know, you, you have the basics there, okay? And so there's a predictability there, and there's a safety and a comfort in that. And then you come home, and, and you try to deal with your wife, and your wife's like, I don't operate like that. I don't care about that. I, I want you to deal with what, what is going on inside of me, and I want you to understand what's going on inside of me. And, and they're like deer in the headlights. It's like, I don't know how to do this. Right. And so that's the opportunity that we have is you can do this. You have transferable skills and abilities. Right. So this this touches a little bit upon one of the key points that I want to make. And that is when we're therapists looking at couples, regardless of what got them there, regardless of where they are in their marriage. Each one of those people have value. Now, the trick is, for us, I think, as therapists, is, number one, helping them to see themselves in a kind way, in a way that's generous, not a critical and a harsh judgmental way, but can you take a look? And can you help each other, particularly with a couple? The couple 
if you can get them disconnected from the negative way that they interact and get them to start looking at each other, talking about what's going on, they can begin to experience each other differently and then they can see this value that they have that sometimes gets lost. It gets lost in the details. It gets lost in the kids. It gets lost in the next thing that needs to be done. It gets lost in the house is a mess and I come home and, and now I've got this on top of everything else to deal with, right? You know, and it's it's interesting, it gets lost in sort of that internal noise, too. Um, you, you mentioned it earlier, is that veterans, whether they're male or female, um, are used to being proficient, and they're uncomfortable doing something they're not proficient in. And if that thing is sharing my emotions, well, I don't want to do it because it's I'm not comfortable doing that. And so a lot of that is the internal noise that keeps the, the service member or the veteran, perhaps, from even engaging in that. And that's something that I think is shared. I mean, whether you're a veteran or not, I mean, one of the most difficult things I had to learn in learning to do emotionally focused therapy was to deal with my own emotions and be able to entertain and not be uh, derailed by the emotions of other people. You know, that's not easy. Yeah, something that we should uh, teach in high school maybe or, or even earlier. So you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with your host, Dwayne France. Today I'm having a conversation with Ken Dotson, a licensed professional counselor with the Family Care Center. So you also specialize in, in really inviting others to consider incorporating their spiritual needs uh, in religious faith into therapy. Um, sometimes some people may see those two things as separate and distinct, faith and psychology. But in my experience, and, and I know that this is uh, something we share, is that it is a critical part of who we are, uh, especially with the military population. Yeah, um, I, I know it's a cliche, but it fits. There's no atheists in foxholes, right? So um, whether, whether we profess a belief in a particular faith or not, like a philosophy, right? We all carry with us a philosophy, whether we label it and talk about it in academic terms or not. We have an orientation, we have a belief system, we have a way of looking at the world. And for those people where their faith is important to them, or it's a big part of their life, then you know there are actually areas like uh, uh, where I go to school right now is in Ohio. And in order to become a therapist in Ohio, that's actually part of their professional standard is that they are supposed to inquire about any spiritual or faith-based concerns that the clients may have, whether that's relative to their therapy. So it's, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about bringing emotions into the therapy room or into the relationship, if you will. Um, if somebody has a faith, then... The, the question becomes, okay, can this be a resource for you? Um, is it something that you're interested in trying to bring into this in a helpful way? If, if there's perhaps a difficulty in that area, is that at all relevant to whatever the presenting issue is? There's just ways to look at this in order to try and turn it into a resource or a possible way 
particularly with people who do, do value a relationship with God in some way, can that be of assistance to them post-therapy? It's interesting you bring up this idea of if there is a concern with that. I mean, this is in, in many of the veterans I've worked with, um, you have, in, in if we talk about faith, it's really one of two things. They had faith, um, and then, then maybe they experienced combat or something, and then they lost it. Or in my experience, um, you know, I had a faith tradition growing up, but it wasn't strong. But then after in in combat, like you said, cliches are cliches for a reason. And then I found my faith uh, in in between these these deployments. Um, and so that idea of questioning faith that that can be really strong for a lot of service members, um, perhaps ones who have really experienced maybe some traumatic loss or saw some challenging things while they were deployed to combat. Yeah, it it you know we're we're starting to talk a little bit about what I like to call hope. In that, if I'm looking around and I don't have anything tangible that I can grab onto, and my life is not going the way I want it to, and I believe that I perhaps am supposed to have a relationship with God, or I did, or do, or wherever we are on that spectrum, then emotionally focused therapy is based on attachment. And so one of the, one of the things that uh, they talk about in emotionally focused therapy is you can reach out to your partner, you can access, you can find your partner, and when you do, your partner will respond to you because you're expressing a need when you reach out. Your partner can respond to you in an emotionally relevant way, validating way, that helps you with that need. Now, that seems to me to be a pretty rational way to look at a relationship, whether it's a marriage, even to some degree friendships, uh, close working relationships, why would that be different in any other purview, particularly relating to your concept of God, if, and if that's important to you, depending upon how you see God, then, you know, that's that's thing. But one thing that I want to mention, and uh, this came from a chaplain that I talked to where I'm going to school, and I said, well, you're a chaplain, so you have to deal with people with all different kinds of faiths. You know, what do you do? And he goes, you, you deal with the God that they give you. And I think that's important when we're talking about this aspect in that we're not here as therapists to impose our views and beliefs if they are different from the people that we're talking to. So we have to establish, right, whether or not we're talking about the similar thing or not and be respectful and understand where they're coming from. But we want to work with what they're giving us in that area. And, and see, in this conversation about faith in therapy, um, you know, it's existentialism, right? I mean, it's it's things like, uh, you know, Rollo May and Irvin Yalam and those of us in the clinical field know these. Um, but, but veterans struggle, or I don't want to say struggle, but they grapple with these existential questions, right? You know, the meaning of life and death. I, I describe it as, you know, veterans and, and especially combat veterans are much more closer to that midnight because they've experienced it. They've had to face their own mortality. Yeah. And some of that questioning or facing their own mortality comes with, naturally, 
well, what's the next step and, and where's the next thing? Um, and so I think some of the mortality speculation that, that veterans have to have, especially again in combat veterans, naturally flows into that question of faith. And what's going to help me now, mm-hmm. right? What What is there for me to help me if I'm staring at, you know, to, to get into this a little bit, if we're talking about somebody who feels very guilty for a variety of reasons, right? We, we, we probably discussed some of these, but I'm guilty because I came back. I'm guilty because I could not protect my guys. I hear that a lot. Um, I'm guilty because of maybe something I participated in, whether I wanted to or not, etc. right? There's all of these different ways in which we tend to be very, very critical with ourselves and highly judgmental towards ourselves. So if we just look at this, um, you know, you you brought up uh, Rollo May, I'd bring up Carl Rogers and client-centered in terms of probably, you know, my faith tradition is Christian, right? And so I'm asking myself, how does my relationship with Jesus impact this relationship that I'm having with the client? And how can I extend attributes toward them? So I think Rogers, who actually was a former seminarian before he came up with client-centered, suggested we have unconditional positive regard. That doesn't mean that we accept everything that they do, but it goes to this, you have value. Mm -hmm. You have value. Essential value, essential goodness. And um, I'm going to be congruent with you, which means I'm going to be honest with you. Oh, my gosh, what a concept. Which means my heart needs to be clean if I'm going to be honest with you, and I need to be kind in being honest with you. And the third piece that he mentioned was empathy. You have to have a genuine empathy for what's going on in the client. You do these things with the intent of helping the client see themselves. Because they don't see themselves. They don't, see, they don't judge themselves fairly. They're not yes. empathetic. They're not yes. kind with themselves. Yes. And even if we go back to that relationship with God is how could, how could, how could you know, whoever the object of my faith is, how could they condone someone who did what I did and things like that? So there's really yeah. a, a um, there's this idea of judgment. I shall be eternally judged and then I'm unforgivable. And so, and this is just my perspective I don't believe that God is a wrathful, judging God. I think he's going to judge, but judgment is to him, okay? My job is how do I show you mercy and compassion and grace? And this isn't just faith, because if you look at neuroscience, neuroscience is talking about this. Neuroscience is talking about mirror neurons and how you have mirror neurons and how somebody treats you and talks to you and interacts with you impacts you at a neurological level, okay? And, you know, there's stuff uh, that's written about that. Um, You know, Daniel Siegel and a lot of his work, you know, being seen, being felt. You know, it's like, yes, you get it. 
but also mm -hmm. demonstrating that the client is worthy of being treated with grace and mercy, and so therefore they can be gracious and merciful with and themselves. And isn't that the crime with any kind of trauma, is the trauma disassociates us from any sense of compassion or really even wanting to have a relationship with ourselves. Yeah, and now we're, we're edging into really my next question, and, and this is a topic, I'm glad that you, you wanted to talk about it because this is one that, that is, is very near and dear to my heart, um, and, and it's related to this, um, and it's the intersection between religious faith and, and psychology is the emerging concept of moral injury. Now, those who are listening may not be familiar with this concept, so moral injury is defined as perpetrating, failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. That's the definition piece. Um, but essentially, it's betraying something that I believe to be true uh, in, in, in myself. Uh, for the veterans I work with, I distinguish between post-traumatic stress disorder and, and injury to the behavior. It's a little more complicated than that, but you know, something loud goes off and, and we react. Um, traumatic brain injury, it's a physical injury to the brain, but moral injury is often described as an injury to our soul, and that lends itself to this discussion about the intersection between psychology and faith. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from a, from a relationship with yourself, if you want to say psychodynamic, um, trauma first of all, if we, if we look at moral injury from the lens of trauma and attachment, the lens of trauma says, I don't, I don't know what to do with what happened. Whether it's something I did or something that was done to me, I simply do not know what to do with it. And it was extremely distressful to me, regardless of what, whether it was a big T or a little T, right? We look at the impact. So that's going and then on top of it, we essentially have what attachment would call an attachment injury or a rupture, which says there has been some sort of a break or a disruption in that relationship. And I believe that relationship is not only the relationship that I have with myself, but it's the relationship that I have to the world, other people, if, if God is a part of that picture, that's a major piece as well, right? I have now become estranged, essentially, from everything. And, and I know that you do a lot of suicide work. And moral injury is something I'm interested in learning more about, how to help with it and so forth, because to me, if I am ready to throw myself away and I don't know even how to begin to start digging my way out of this hole. I need hope. I need something that I can hold on to. I need somebody to help make this tangible for me so that I've got something to hold on to while I begin the process of whatever therapy that I engage in to believe that in, to your existential question, I may not know the answer now, but I've got something to pause, like the semicolon, right? A pause. We're going to take a pause here. This could have been the end, but I'm going to continue on. 
And when, when we allow ourselves to feel that kind of pain, that kind of, I don't belong anywhere to anybody. I don't want to belong mm-hmm. anywhere with anybody. That's when somebody that has what I would call a strong faith to come and try to offer them some hope and begin the exploration process of of the trauma and to be able to have some sort of a discussion with them about how do they understand God, how do they view God, how do they view their relationship with God. It all becomes suddenly very relevant. Yeah, no, it's interesting that idea of the, the concept of this rupturing between you know, ourselves, right? And that's really, I think, that's a really good way to, to view moral injury is this is a rupture between how I believe I'm supposed to act. And we use a very basic one as in, you know, thou shalt not kill if that's part of your moral code, right? We didn't grow up thinking that we can point a gun in somebody's face and get them to do what we, we say that, that that we want them to do. But then we're, we're sent somewhere where we have to act in a way that is very diametrically opposed to mm-hmm. our very core beliefs. And yeah. the military does a very good job, I think, from basic training, overcoming that particular one. Mm-hmm. But another one that you described was um, I'm responsible for every single person here. Yes. And, and that's something that I believe in my core. And because of my actions, maybe outside of my actions, I wasn't able to do that. And so I have betrayed a core belief about myself, and that creates that rupture. That's sort of what you're talking about. Yeah, part of what goes with the military mindset is you want to equip your leaders to be more responsible, okay? And so I think the military does a very good job of instilling to to the leaders who are good that sense, that notion, and yet, The downside is it easily leads them to try to be responsible for things that they can't possibly be responsible. Mm -hmm. I remember, Dwayne, you sitting there talking to an individual who lost somebody very near and dear to him, not just a fellow soldier, um, but a friend. And he was in a guard tower. I think you remember this, right? And you were saying if the Apache was spun up and ready to go, he still couldn't have got to him in time. And I think this nails what you're talking about by the on the head because he felt not just a military obligation. This this was his friend, mm-hmm. the, more than a friend, mm-hmm. a, 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 a moral obligation. That's really. Yeah, but he felt this was a, almost like a a I don't want to quite say soulmate, but you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. This is yeah. a very near near and dear individual to him really close buddy and he couldn't save him and he couldn't live with that and he went totally off the rails right he, he disappeared couldn't even find him right that's how much that rupture didn't allow him to even be present. I mean, we saw that. He just couldn't be present. He was all full of, you know, bravado mm-hmm. and, well, this is why I am the way I am. And, you know, just very disconnected, right? And it's because I think he, he lost any sense of hope 
that he was going to find a way back. Yeah, no, very, very powerful. Ken, I, um, I, I, I think that this really is uh, demonstrative of um, there's a wide range of things that military and veterans need to address, right? And, and there's, there's people out there, there's therapists out there that can really help them. Because imagine, and, and you know, perhaps even I, I don't need to imagine, being able to struggle with these things mm. um, without any help, without anybody to sort of offload some of that grace or mercy or hope. So really appreciate you sharing with the audience. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Ken. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you'd like to drop us an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com. Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Pikes Peak Community College. Pikes Peak Community College has as many dreams as they do students, and they come in every variety. High school graduates, veterans, single mothers, factory workers, artists, bookworms, and retirees from every race, ethnicity, and age. This creates a supportive learning environment and a sense of belonging for those who want to build a better future while staying close to home and for travelers on their way from here to everywhere. PPCC is the largest, most diverse post-secondary educational institution in Southern Colorado and offers associate's degrees, certifications in career and technical fields, and three bachelor's degrees. With three campuses, various off-campus locations, two military education centers, the Center for Healthcare Education and Simulation, and hundreds of online classes, PPCC provides access to quality, affordable, and flexible education to more than 20,000 students annually with both credit and non-credit courses. Pikes Peak Community College was established in 1968 as El Paso Community College, a two-year college offering three associate's degrees. Operating out of rented buildings in Old Colorado City, first-year enrollment was roughly 800 students. The first graduation was held April 1970 at Bancroft Park, yielding 17 associate's degrees and 70 certificates. Enrollment grew rapidly, in part because of an emphasis placed on military programs, which have become a significant aspect of the college, and the need for permanent facilities became apparent. Early in 1973, the U.S. government declared 212 acres of land along the northern boundary of Fort Carson as surplus land, and on February 15, 1974, the deed to the site was transferred to the State Board for Community Colleges and Occupational Education for use by El Paso Community College. The full-service Centennial Campus was built in 1978, and the College Council approved a new name, Pikes Peak Community College. The college experienced a variety of changes throughout the 1970s, including a tremendous surge in occupational majors due to heavy veteran enrollment and the birth of KEPC College Radio, along with the arrival and departure of collegiate sports teams and the El Paso International Community College in Germany. Despite these changes, PPCC stayed true to its historical roots by adapting to serve the community needs first and foremost. Over the past four decades, PPCC has expanded on that mission, helping active duty veterans and their family members make the most of their military benefits and attain a quality, affordable education, the foundation for thousands of careers. PPCC is continually expanding their programs to address critical workforce needs. One example is the new Center for Healthcare Education and Simulation, which houses classrooms for nursing and allied health programs and a state-of-the-art interdisciplinary simulation lab. This means that PPCC can increase enrollment in nursing and allied health programs by 20 to 50% over the next three years. P 
PPCC continues to grow the thriving downtown art scene with its new Studio West building on the downtown campus. It houses a modernized art gallery as well as a black box theater, dance rehearsals, and performance space. Because PPCC offers more than 200 degrees and certificate programs, they have advisors and online tools to help students navigate their choices and help them turn their passion into something tangible and extraordinary, a fulfilling and rewarding career. Here are some basic facts about being a student of PPCC. With more than 20,000 students, PPCC is the largest and most diverse college in the Pikes Peak region. PPCC serves the largest veteran population in Colorado, with nearly 3,000 veterans per year attending the college. The average class size is 16 students. PPCC offers transferable credits to UCCS, CSU, Regis University, and many other four-year colleges and universities throughout the nation. Tuition costs on average $4,651 annually. This is based on two semesters at 15 credits per semester and can vary based on programs of study. PPCC students receive a rate of return of 13% on the money they invest in tuition. PPCC also awards $1 million in scholarships annually. Most students who apply for scholarships or financial aid get assistance. Their nationally accredited Child Development Center provides quality care and educational services for children from six weeks to five years old. The Military and Veterans Program is a department at PPCC dedicated to supporting active service members, veterans, and their family. They are college employees as well as veterans, family members, and civilians dedicated to providing you the best educational experience PPCC can offer. MVP is your go-to source for assistance with on-post, on-base, compressed general education classes in eight-week and other shorter-term formats designed to fit the schedule of an active duty service member, college application, enrollment, and student portal training, as well as general college information, academic advising on how best to use your benefits to ensure benefit eligibility, evaluation of active duty military training for college education, prior learning assessment, tutoring and academic support through Veterans Upward Bound, community-based referrals for non-educational assistance, engagement in military and veteran-related programming and events, including Veterans Day observations, membership in the Student Veterans Organization, military withdrawal from classes due to duty conflict, and discounted spouse tuition for classes taken on military sites in which the active duty spouse is also concurrently enrolled in on-site classes. PPCC has a dedicated military and veterans center of excellence where their specialized advisors and counselors are trained in veterans issues. They can walk you through your VA education benefits along with other military funding opportunities for both service members and families. PPCC also provides full service offices on site that will help you with your application, advising, registration, placement testing, and credit for prior learning in addition to helping with tuition assistance. Life can be complicated. That's why Pikes Peak Community College offers maximum flexibility with day, evening, and weekend courses in traditional, online, and hybrid formats. PPCC offers several programs and services specific for military and veteran students, including work studies, the Military Arts Connection, Veterans Upward Bound, the Student Veterans Organization, and more. At Pikes Peak Community College, they have more paths to success than Colorado has mountain trails. To get a full picture of everything Pikes Peak Community College provides and what's required for admissions, please visit ppcc.edu. So I hope you appreciated the Homefront Military Network resource of the week. If you want to hear more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. If you'd like to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find them online at fcsprings.com. The Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. 
They prioritize you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thanks for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you might have or know what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send us an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided in this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on the show brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.